Hey everyone, today I'm about to break one of the core rules of this mixtape, which is that episodes should come in at around 10 minutes. Uh, this is a 25-minute rant from Alex Danko, which is still one of the best essays I've read of the year. He posted it on January 22nd, and I think it's still resonating. It basically is a theory of social class that is both entertaining and actually strangely true. Just don't think too hard about it because if you do you will realize how true it is maybe this is a good segue into the other thing that i feel like we were theoretically supposed to talk about this podcast episode which was the michael scott theory of social class which again is like another example of the power of world building in this case it's the power of world building as applied to the phenomenon of middle management right right like what is middle management if not world building <laughs> Really, because that's all you've got, right? Is this world you've constructed? So originally, I mean, who, so who's going to fill the forms out? I mean, come on, <laughs> it's not—it's not only who's going to fill the forms out. It's like who's going to create the meaning. It's like I forget who described middle management as the control rods in a nuclear reactor. It's like the point <laughs> of them is to slow things down right. so that it doesn't run out of your control and blow up. Um, so okay, so so I wrote this piece, the Michael Scott theory of social class which is basically a reskinning of Venkatesh Rao's article, The Gervais Principle, which itself was a reskinning of Holly White's book, The Organization Man. Oh, yep. so that's the actual source material is The Organization Man. Have you right. read The Organization Man? Do you know that book? I do know the book. I don't have notes on it. So that means I didn't take it seriously. Okay. It's so good. It's so good. It's in the list of books right. I recommend to everybody. So I'm going to um, I'm gonna have to read it again. What's remarkable about The Organization Man is simultaneously how in a literal sense it did not get the future right but at a second order sense it just nailed the future so hard it got it so 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 right just at a slightly different abstraction layer than people realize so the general thesis of the organization man is that all organizations that survive have stratified into three layers you have the bottom layer the middle layer and the top layer the bottom layer is the people who do the actual work this is the majority of people. Their lives are spent doing literal things. So these are line workers, frontline people, anybody who is actually producing something, literally. Yeah. yeah. They're the people at the bottom. They're the majority of people. At the top, you have the execs. They actually have a lot in common with the people at the bottom in the sense that they have very literal roles and responsibilities and very real stakes involved. And they see the world very clearly as it is. Both the people at the bottom and the people at the top see the world through clear eyes with clear actions and consequences. But there's this group of people in the middle called middle management that is really, really different than either of those groups of people. And their job is to intermediate between the people at the top and the people at the bottom by basically constructing this reality called middle management that does not literally produce anything, nor have any literal stakes or consequences, but whose job is effectively to mediate, like the control rods in the reactor, to say like, look, the goal here is to create a stable system that perpetuates, regardless of how efficient it is or how complicated it is or anything. It's just like, can you get something to persist? This group of people will always emerge in one form or another. So in the 1950s, in the early 50s, when Holly White wrote this book, this was in the era of these mega, mega conglomerates like Dow, DuPont, U.S. Steel, General Motors. Like yep. this was the field, like the current mindset was that this is the frontier of progress was mega organizational dynamics. 
it was scale begets scale begets scale. This is how everything right. works. Eventually, everything will be run by four corporations because we figured out this science of how management works. And specifically, we figured out what middle management is. We created this whole world of middle management that has a sense of purpose and a sense of identity. And it was fed through these institutions called business schools and the NBA and this whole idea that like middle manager was actually this craft more or less independent of the industry it was in. It's like, what do you do? Oh, you're a manager. Oh, like what kind of industry do you manage? Doesn't matter. Like I do manage. Right. That was a thing that you could learn. You could go to management school and learn management regardless of where you were from. You remember in The Office? Well, when, I'm, um, just, I'm just sitting here because I love that movie. And there, was, like... there was one particular episode of The Office where David Wallace, the CFO, brings in a new boss for Michael who is Idris Elba, uh, who comes in as like the professional manager. And Michael's like, where are you from? He's like, oh, steel. um um, but anyway so there's this idea saying like as holly white describes it william h white he went by holly white as he describes it right so the whole book is about this three-layer system and this three-layer construct where you have the people at the bottom who again are doing all the actual work and have no path to leverage and the people at the top who have all the leverage but are very deeply suspicious of everything and are perpetually trying to acquire and keep control over this huge sprawling organization. Basically, those two sides, in order to not fly apart at 100 miles an hour, need this mediating influence in the middle called the middle management. But in order for that to exist, there needs to be a purpose for the middle managers to have. And hence, what you have to do is you have to build a world in which management is important. So this is where you get this world of Taylorism and like management as a science which sort of expanded and grew and grew and grew into this really self-perpetuating construct where it's like where what happened with middle management is we were able to create a world where management was a challenge that was considered a worthy challenge that people would go into, put all of their identities into, and then it would perpetuate and perpetuate and perpetuate. So if you look at some of the really good books on how to manage, like Andy Grove, like uh, high output management, things like that, is almost like a return. High output management, the thesis of that book, if you haven't read it, is basically like, we figured out how to manage production. It's called factories. Everything can ultimately be understood in terms of like how production management works, in terms of buffer capacity, in terms of like how you set challenges and how you like arrange for like thinking about like how you manage the output of an organization. The whole thesis here was that this is equally applicable to management and like talent and hiring people and like all these supposedly soft skills that didn't work like factories. Andy's like, I actually like I made Intel, like I know how to manage. But nonetheless, middle management is this construct, which again, if you fast forward to today, you can just replace with product management in a tech company or any of these other venture capital associate, any of these positions where you are not literally in charge of anything, nor are you literally making anything. Your job is to intermediate in some way. And hence, you live, this is a very roundabout way to get into the thesis of the article. You live in a world that is entirely a construct of your own creation. Right, there's Correct. nothing literal in your world. Your world is entirely defined and surrounded by fairly arbitrary challenges and goals and measuring sticks that have been created in a self-perpetuating sense and are not the very literal things by which anything is measured. One of the two core theses of the Michael Scott article was that there is a reason why like, these worlds, again, always back to world building, what makes these worlds perpetuate? What makes Michael Scott's world have purpose and have ongoing perpetuation that self-reinforces is language. Have you read Venkatesh Rao's original article, The Gervais Principle? 
Uh, is yes. that something you're familiar with? Okay. Yeah. So for audience, if you haven't read this, go Google the Gervais principle, Gervais like Ricky Gervais from the office, and go read that at some point on your set aside a couple article. hours. Yeah. It's really to good. Read through this series of articles. It gets really esoteric, but like it's fantastic. So it's going through the office as a theory, the office, the American TV show, the office as a comprehensive cynical theory of management. That is, again, it's like, it's a reskinning of the organization, man. It says like, look, like you have these three fundamental groups of people in the TV show, The Office. At the bottom, you have a group of people called the losers who are not uncool, but they're economic losers. No path to leverage. Fundamentally, their work output is realized wholly by someone else. They are fundamentally paid on cost-based pricing, not value-based pricing, et cetera. And this is the majority of the people in The Office. They see the world through clear eyes and they cope. This is like Stanley, Pam, Daryl, most of these people. They're, mm -hmm. they're at the bottom. They're the losers of the office. They occupy most of the positions in the company. At the top, you have the people who are the sociopaths. They're the people <laughs> in charge. What they care about is power. And they occupy this other role in the show, which is they're the other group of people that sees the world through clear eyes. So in the show, this means David Wallace, the CFO, the authority figure. Jan, before she becomes Michael's lover and collapses right. in a mental breakdown. <laughs> Ryan, I, the just I do need to interject here. Yeah. I loved that segue for Jan because she did go from a sociopathic control freak to this blubbering yeah, dumbass. This complete, this complete mess. <laughs> yeah. um, Ryan the temp, right, is oh, the most absolutely. important example of somebody who brilliantly grabs real power yes. and then immediately squanders it. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then finally. The last sociopath character is actually the real drama of the show, by the way, is the will he or won't he go over to the dark side is Jim. Jim yes. is the real villain of The Office. Once you realize this, it actually sort of reshapes a lot of the shows that Jim is the villain. Jim is actually a complete asshole. He's horrible to Dwight. He's really arrogant. He's kind of mean to everybody. He doesn't actually treat Pam very well for that no. matter. Um, <laughs> That's quite true. So Jim is actually like the secret sociopath, where the real drama of the office is the will he or won't he explicitly go over to the dark side. Right. But then, so both of those two groups of people see the world through clear eyes as it is. But in the middle, you have three characters. And fundamentally, the office is a show about these three people. Yeah. It's Michael, Dwight, and Andy. <laughs> the central drama of the show by the time the office really really hits its stride in season three is when it's established this relationship it is about michael dwight and andy's search for meaning in a world that is entirely their own construct that right. they cannot escape because they are compulsively forced to double down on reaffirming the meaningless meaning that they are creating for themselves <laughs> and each of them expresses this in a different way Michael, it's in the form of like, it's everything about Michael. Everything about Michael's world is this world of his own creation that he's made right. in this bubble around him. But same for Dwight and same for Andy, all in their different ways. It sort of shows up in all the sort of the meaningless talking and the jokes that don't make any sense and the constant pleas for people to pay attention to them. Andy's anger management issues, Dwight's LARPing about like being a first responder, all of these things, but especially about Michael and his self-identity that is wrapped up in being interesting. There was this really notable tweet about, there was this argument that happened on Twitter about whether Michael Scott would know how to use chopsticks. Does Michael know how to use chopsticks, yes or no? And the answer is obviously yes. Of course he does. He takes enormous pride in knowing right. how to use chopsticks and tells everybody. 
and like he probably learned it from watching tv in his apartment by himself yeah that would be you too (laughs) right so you have this these cast of three characters michael dwight and andy and they inhabit this world that they have built for themselves and that other people happily help them build because it helps everybody fulfill their own respective purposes the senior people up top indulge and support michael's world building because they need somebody to oversee the branch and make sure that it stays in more or less the same state as they expect it to be whenever they come down to Scranton from New York. The people doing the actual work, Pam, Daryl, the warehouse, all the salespeople, everybody, need Michael to stay in his state of delusion because it gets him out of their way. Pam in the show takes the de facto role of narrator. She's the one who's basically narrating to the audience all of the things that they do to support and create and perpetuate this little delusion inside Michael's little world and also Dwight and Andy. I remember the point I was getting to. It was around language. (laughs) The most brilliant part of Venkatesh Rao's piece is the subchapter in the Gervais Principle around language and how people talk to each other and the five different coded languages that are used between different groups of people talking to each other. You have these three groups. You have the senior sociopaths. You have the people at the bottom who do the actual work, both of whom are literal. And then you have the middle managers in the middle who clueless. So there are five possible languages that are spoken in the intersection of these three groups. The first language that's spoken is something called posture talk. That is the language that is spoken by the clueless people who are in this world of their own construction. So it's everything spoken by Michael, Dwight, and Andy to anyone, including themselves. It's basically meaningless babbling that has no grounding in reality whatsoever, but makes sense inside this world they've created for themselves. That is how they talk, both internally and projecting out. Meanwhile, everybody who talks to them speaks a language called baby talk, which basically goes, they're there. Like, you don't know what you're talking about, but like, there, it's soothing. It's like, just stay in your little box. Like, don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. Just please don't screw this up. It's how you talk to kids when they're actually capable of causing danger, and you want them to stay placated. Yes. The other three languages spoken, by the way, are... um, there's the internal language among all the losers, which is like, yeah, I'm I okay, you're one. okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just basically like getting themselves through the day. The, the in-group self-referencing and self-supporting Ex- Exactly. You have the internal language of the sociopaths, which is called power talk, which is all about information gathering, right? And retroactive <laughs> deniability. Right. Um, and then you have the rarest language of all, which is straight talk, which is the only time that language happens that's not encoded at all, which is the rare instance where the senior execs talk to the line workers, which is unencoded straight talk. Like, what the fuck happened here? What? Right. Go fix it. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only time oh, that straight oh. talk occurs is yeah. the accidental occasions where senior management ends up confronted with frontline workers because Michael screwed something up invariably. Right. (laughs) Right. That's the only situation in which that happens. So let's look at the office as this little three-layer system where you have the Michael Dwight's and Andy's in the middle who live in this world of their own construct where it is entirely an exercise both for them and for those around them of world building, just to create and perpetuate any kind of purpose that maintains coherence. Right. Sandwiched between the group of people on the bottom and the top who actually have fairly literal roles and responsibilities. Now, you can take that and actually extrapolate that onto the American class system, more or less faithfully. So you have, again, it's like talking in broad strokes here. It's like you have the people at the bottom, who is the majority of people, people who earn income through labor, and who 
There's a ladder that you can climb up from at the bottom. It's like working very, very hard hourly or informal jobs. You work your way up through blue collar jobs. At the top of this ladder, as you work up, you do own property. You own an F-150. You might own a vacation home. You have a nice life. Like you can work your way up to being well off in this group of people. But fundamentally, your life is fairly literal and you have not created any paths to leverage for yourself. That's this group of people. It's the majority of people. It's everybody who doesn't live on the coast basically is in this group <laughs> right. of people, more or less. The coast or, or coastal-like towns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Skipping the middle group for a second, you have the people at the top who, again, are like the elites in power who are sociopaths, right? This is just <laughs> all about like- no, no, keep saying sociopath. I am a highly functioning sociopath, I'll have you know. <laughs> I'm not sure you're in this group because you're on Twitter too much. I think you're actually the king of the middle people. (laughs) We'll get to that in a second. We'll get to that in a second. We'll get to that in a second. My kingdom, my kingdom. The kingdom of the Michael Scotts. So you have the people on the top who are like, this is a path that starts out, like the entry point into this path is either being born rich or being a junior eye banker. Either you luck into the path or you have to just brutally work your way to the top at either like a white shoe law firm or like investment banking or now actually starting a startup can conceivably get you into this path, although it's like still relatively uncommon. But nonetheless, it's like this is also a group of people that when you're in the world of real power, you actually do see the world more or less as it is. And you do see stakes more or less as they are. But in the middle, you have this group of people. This is the Michael Scott group of people, which is the petite bourgeoisie. This is the upper middle class who live in the world of Whole Foods and farmer's market and virtue signal performancing and where everything about your life is the statement about values you have that are expensive to hold, where you in all likelihood, people in this job, and there are some exceptions. So like there are some jobs where like economically speaking would put you in the middle, but socially are not. Doctors are actually one of these groups. Like doctors do something very, very real but whose jobs put them in the upper middle class. But mostly if you're an upper middle class person like me, you have some absolutely made up job. You work in digital marketing or you were a product manager or you work actually like many people in law are in various forms of this, or you work in some form of business development or you work in much of sales is not in this group. A lot of sales is very, very real and literal, but some sales is very made up. There's some sales that's very, very much in this world of like upper middle class permissiveness, where again, like in this group, the fundamental feature of this group. So if you were to stratify this group along a ladder as you work your way up, the entry point to this group, if you were not born. So the main way you get into this group is you're born there. You're born to upper middle class parents. And so hence you are upper middle class, but you can enter the group by going to college. If you're the first in your family to go to college, you can enter this group and you will have quite a culture shock when you do about what people are like in this group. But as you work your way up, you don't work your way up this ladder by making more money. This cultural ladder definitely does not organize by income. It organizes by how interesting you are and how detached from reality you are, (laughs) right? (laughs) So like people with, like if you're pursuing a PhD, very high status. Absolutely, it could be a totally meaningless and contrived pursuit, right? right? It could just be the most nonsensical thing, but it's very high status to be doing your PhD. Blue check marks on Twitter, same thing. Doesn't mean you have oh, money. Good. Doesn't mean you, doesn't mean, me you doesn't mean, like, but it's like, if there's a particular kind, again, it's like the top of this ladder, by the way, the absolute top of this ladder of people, I'd say the litmus test is, could you write an op-ed for the New York Times? Would that make sense? Again, people at the bottom group don't do this. People in the top group also don't do this because the New York Times won't let them because they're bad, oh. right? It's like, 
Someone like John Stewart is probably like the absolute top of this group or yeah. someone like that, right? Like yeah. um, yep. just total cultural relevance and lore among this particular group of people. And bringing this back to the Gervais principle thing and the office, what fundamentally defines this group of people, of which I absolutely am one, by the way, like me and everybody in my neighborhood around me and in my job around me and like everyone I surround myself with is in this group of people, by the way. So this is a group of people where it's like a Subaru is a higher status car than a Cadillac. I'd say that's a good <laughs> litmus test. If you would never be seen dead riding it, driving a Cadillac, but you would drive a Subaru and brag about it. That's me, right? Yeah. Like, I, like I drive a Subaru Outback. Um, that's my car that's broken that the mechanic had to come fix. <laughs> Another one is like, would you be mortified showing off a $10,000 watch, but excitedly brag about a $150,000 kitchen reno? Then you're in this group. Because again, it's like, you're not showing off how much money you spent, even though you clearly are. It's all about like, here's how interesting and unique I am, right? And it's yeah. all about like, advancing in this group is all about detaching yourself from reality. So remember, 50 years ago, what this meant was leaving the reality of the dirty cities and moving out to the detached from reality place of the suburbs. Now it's the other way around. It's detaching yourself from the reality of chain restaurant, gas guzzling, suburban car hell, and moving back to walkable neighborhoods, right? Like it's, it's all about detachment from reality. And again, it's like, it's not only like this whole idea of like, oh, I'm detaching myself from reality. This is something that you brag about. If you are like, oh, like I shop at the local farmer's market so I can do 100-mile diet, that is you detaching yourself from reality and telling everybody about it. Yeah. Right? Like it says something about you. It's a challenge that you're doing. It gives you meaning and it gives you purpose. Or it's like if you do triathlons. You know people who do triathlons, Jim? Like I actually they don't. never shut the fuck up about triathlons. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. It's I fine. run into it, them at parties. Yes. Yeah, yeah, like it's fine. But it's like at some point, it's like people who are really, really into these things, what you notice about them is they start to talk weird. They develop these speech patterns that at first are only visible when they're talking about whatever it is they find really meaningful, but eventually it just takes over everything. Yes. And the reason why is not only because they have this internal language that they talk in, that it's all about like, validate my pursuit, yes. acknowledge this meaning that I've constructed for myself, that's meaningless <laughs> to everybody else, but it's, it's a beg for acknowledgement for the meaning that they've created. And you know how people talk back to them? It's baby talk. Yeah, right? it's, I know. It's Uber driver talk. It's like, I'll entertain this conversation, but like, please give me five stars. Like, I need it, please. Right? It's, or like, it's all the advertising of prestige TV. You are so smart for watching Fargo. You are so <laughs> sophisticated for watching House of Cards. Like, get, come on. This whole idea of world building, right? It's like the reason why world building is so important, and it is especially important in worlds of plenty, in worlds of material abundance and worlds where everything is basically provided for you. But what is scarce and valuable is actually meaning. It's challenges that you identify with and your sense of accomplishment upon challenging them. That is what people really want when their basic needs are taken care of. And it's in fact what people are most desperately seeking. When you enter this world of upper middle classdom, it becomes entirely about this search for not only like ways to find meaning, but like around it's like, what is the way that you are going to detach yourself from reality and create this construct of meaning around yourself? The author who wrote about this amazingly well, what, it, was, it was David Brooks a long time ago, back when David Brooks could really throw <laughs> fastballs. Bobo's in Paradise? Bobo's in Paradise. It was Bobo's yeah. in Paradise. Amazing book. Yeah. Yeah, um, an incredible line from Bobo's in Paradise is that the highest possible compliment in this group is to call someone serious. Right. Like, oh, he's a serious <laughs> kiteboarder. 
before. <laughs> She's serious about cooking healthy meals. Yes. Right? That is the highest possible compliment you can give someone because it is the ultimate form of validating their pursuit, which is all we just desperately want. I love right? so you it. Take, so the thesis of my Michael Scott article was that as you ascend the ladder and the ranks of the upper middle class, more and more of your life becomes the self-defined recursive quest for meaning in a construct of your own creation that is reinforced by your language progressively becoming posture talk, please validate my pursuits, and other people talking back to you in baby talk, they're there. Like, everything you do is made up. It'll be okay. Just stay in your little box and don't cause problems, right? <laughs> Therefore, reinforcing and reinforcing itself until eventually you become Michael Scott. Listen, man, I think, I, I think, I think you just did a hard close on me. That's I Michael Scott. That. So do you have more than 10,000 followers on Twitter? You're Michael Scott. Do you have an opinion about what is the right amount of hops in an IPA? You I are do Michael not. Scott. You are Michael Scott. Do you, if you drive a Subaru and you are overly concerned with the all-wheel drive mechanics between like the new versions versus the old versions for your ability to get to the cross-country ski trails, you're Michael Scott. I am all these things, by the way. <laughs> are you pursuing a PhD in anything? Absolutely, Michael Scott. Do you read my newsletter? You're Michael Scott. Um, we are all Michael Scott. If you listen to this mixtape, you're absolutely Michael Scott. If you're entertained by it, you're absolutely Michael Scott. And from one Michael Scott to the other, I appreciate you.